So welcome everybody back to Safe Space episode two. Season one. We're still on season one, yes. It's going to take a while. My name is Robert and I'm here with Davide. And well, we're, we're welcoming all those who came back, all hopefully five. And I hope we're going to have many more new listeners, more than five. We already have five? I think we actually had five listeners. My God. And none of them is your mother? No, none of them is my mother. But I'm not sure if anybody outside Lerbling actually listened to it. Would we bother telling people what Lerbling is? Or did we say that already? Um, we talked about this retreat center in the south of France. By the way, it's France we are, we are living in. And it's called Lerbling. So that's where we are. It's a beautiful day. And here we are. We have a little bit of follow-up from last time. Wow. Yeah, we got some feedback. Um, most importantly, people complained that they were not invited to the party where this podcast idea was born. We've got nothing to do with that, Robert. There's, that not, there's nothing we can do about that because the party, party is really over. Yeah, it was not our party in the first place. Yeah. I think I even managed to squeeze myself in. I don't think I was even part of the original list of invitees. Well, well done. Then, much more seriously, we have been compared to a, a, a double conference of Schwarzenegger and Robert De Niro, which raises some serious questions. And also, um, the tweet was, we are like Schwarzenegger and De Niro in elevator. So that's the elevator part that I don't understand. Was it about, about the acoustic of the recording? I think the point was that if people have no choice but to talk to each other, something <laughs> is going to come out. <laughs> yeah, this raises a lot of questions because actually, geographically speaking, I think Schwarzenegger's birthplace is much closer to David's birthplace than to mine. That's right. Maybe something to do with our respective accent. Yeah. And of course, Robert De Niro has my name. so That's true. So who's who? That's, that's, that's difficult. But we're waiting for more feedback to figure that one out. By the way, if you do want to get back to us, um, I have a Twitter account. You can write to me at Robert Rigpa. Robert, just Robert. And Rigpa is R-I-G-P-A. And I have no idea how to use the internet, so just talk to Robert. He'll, he'll let me know. And we also have a Twitter account for the podcast, which is Safe Space 2012. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's true. So we're always happy to receive feedback, especially if you have things that you want us to talk about. I cannot imagine why, but anyway, um, <clears throat> there was something, another topic from last time, which we kind of brushed over a little bit, which I wanted to look again. And David was actually th saying that somehow the path to enlightenment could be looked at like a project, mm. isn't it? I said that, yeah. And you did kind of mumble something about GTD. And yeah. So what's this GTD that you always keep on talking about? Well, GTD can refer either to a specific model of 
uh, Volkswagen Golf GTD. Yeah, which is not what we're talking about here. No, we're talking about the getting things done, which is a um, self-management productivity philosophy, if you want. Uh, it has been designed by the productivity llama called um, David Allen. Uh, so who is this David Allen? Is that David like 20th century, 19th century figure? 21st century. Okay. so <laughs> Well, he started in the 20th, of course. And he's, uh, he's a very, he was a very cool guy from the, from the US. He, he developed, uh, I'm not sure if in the 70s or 80s, uh, a whole system of how to manage your own working life. And he actually extend, extends it to his private life or suggests that we should do that. And it's pretty lean, pretty simple, but has very helpful principles. One of the principles is that, um, well, anything that you can do there and then in a couple of minutes, you just do. But anything that requires more than one action, you call it a project, and then you define what is your next action in that project. So as you can see, you don't need to have the whole project figured out before you even start doing something. But you put down your first physical action, which is, he discovered... Very often what stops us from even engaging with that activity, uh, either because we are very unclear about what it means or because we are not clear what to do next. Like uh, a project could be new car, right? And uh, the first action you could do is search the internet. So you would, you would write that down or do it immediately. And that's your first action. So you would have something very simple to do that move your project forward. Uh, there is much more to it, to his, uh, to his philosophy. But uh, so, how do you think that applies to the spiritual path? Well, spiritual path is something that has a goal, something that takes more than one action. Um, That's for sure, and we definitely don't have all the steps ready yet. And we don't know exactly the sequence of the steps we wanna, we will need to undertake. So, in so far, and I think it's similar. You, you just set your goal, which is uh, often, according to the spiritual tradition, but it's of something called enlightenment or something similar, and then, and then you, you start by doing the first, the first thing you, you think is most conducive to go in that direction, uh, and if you have a few more things clear in mind of, uh, in terms of the sequence, you start, you start uh, planning accordingly. Uh, I think what I was trying to say is also that it's really helpful to bring practical, useful procedure into our spiritual life because spiritual life is all about changing the life we already have. It's something to do with the life we have and the life we want to have in the future. It's not something like an appendix or a tag to what's happening that makes everything look differently from what it really is. So it is something very concrete. And therefore, because it's something very concrete, uh, we should make use of uh, concrete language and concrete tools to support us in doing it. And there's one big difference, though, <clears throat> that on the spiritual path, um, from a Buddhist point of view, I guess you can say that the main tool you use on the spiritual path is mind. That's right. So the essence, is, the essence of the path would be working with your mind, transforming your mind. Yeah. Which, and that's of course good news for us, the mind is always there. 
you don't need the internet to st for your next task or you don't need to be next to a telephone or be in an office to talk to somebody. Basically, wherever you are, whatever you do, the mind is already there with you. So you have a chance to actually do something. That's correct. That is a, there's a whole part of uh, the GTD uh, program from David Allen that talks about uh, the, the location of Uh, I don't remember the exact name he uses, but where you, where is the place where you can do that one thing that you want to do? Like, it would be great uh, if you remember where you are in the store, what are the things that you wanted to buy at that store? Or while you are in the internet, that you remember all the things you wanted to do in the internet and not vice versa. And he has kind of uh, pointed that out and there are kind of softwares and, and, and systems that help you by doing that, by reminding you at the right time, <laughs> according to the context, what you should do. And the path sometimes looks like it can only be done on a cushion or in a special environment or in a, uh, you know, in a church or in a synagogue, in a temple. But actually, uh, you know, if you accept or you agree on the fact that uh, it's based on the mind, There's a lot of, uh, lot of options, a lot of situation where you can apply the path and uh, eventually then the, your life becomes the path, the path before, becomes your life and that's how you move pretty quickly and successfully. Of course, we're not saying that that means you don't have to have a formal practice. Well, the formal practice <laughs> is extremely helpful. I, I don't know if I made this example last time, but it's like, it's really, really helpful to start with something you are not really good at yet if you do it in an environment that helps you, that it's deprived of distraction, that it somehow reminds you of what you're supposed to do and doesn't distract you with other things. Uh, you know, it's really helpful to go to school to learn. It's really helpful to be in an inspiring environment to, to practice something that reminds you about the practice uh, that is relatively silent, uh, where there is no music maybe going. But that is just, I think a help for us why we get really, really good at it. Really, really good at it. It's like learning to drive. You don't start with, you know, rally driving in a very, you know, during the rain in the night. You do it with your father normally uh, in a parking lot. And if you manage to survive it without denting other people's car, that's a great day. How did you learn to, how to drive? Um, I actually went to driving school and... I remember the panic I had when I sat down in this car and I had never driven a car before. Mm. And so this car driving school was in the middle of the city and they had a little inner courtyard where they parked their cars. So I sat down and the driving teacher said, okay, off you go, drive outside. In the real world? In the real world. Wow. So I had like 10 meters of protected driving <laughs> and then I was basically in the middle of the town near the train station going into full swing traffic. So that must be the Austrian way. That must be the Austrian <laughs> way. I don't know. Um, I'm not recommending that kind of as an analogy, how to learn to meditate or for spiritual practice. Yeah. It might think, be a little bit rough. Yeah. It's much better to, you know, to, to To do it, to stay in the parking lot for a little while and then from time to time get out and then get in and, and do it more and more. Um, yeah, I think that's um, 
maybe enough for oh, actually, there was one more point i i was thinking about which kind of to underline this point that the essence of the spiritual practice is actually working with your mind and actually this point might not be so relevant but anyway there is this description and that david is going to help me out because he is our academic in terms of buddhism the buddha is often described in the scriptures as having these two qualities kind of he has purified all obscurations and he is endowed with all all wisdom so all knowledge qualities i think no all qualities yeah mm. so <clears throat> so the point would be well one of the points would be definitely to purify all our obscurations yeah because i think that I mean, now we go into, you know, Buddhism specific way of presenting the spiritual path and the idea of enlightenment there. I think the cool stuff around that is that um, that thing called enlightenment that we try to reach or uh, Buddhahood is not something external that get added to what we are now, but it's inherently there already. Basically, we just need to get rid of all the stuff that are obscuring or covering up this realization, this form of being called being a Buddha. Uh, and and there we are. So all we concentrate on most of the time is to eliminating external things that don't belong to the fundamental nature of, 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 a, of a human being or of a sentient being that is um, enlightenment. And I think that when we talk about that, we need a little bit, and that takes time and study sometimes, kind of, we need a little bit to get get away from the, you know, imagery and the, uh, whatever we thought we understood about being enlightened, or even the idea that the Buddha is a one unique being that we will never be able to uh, be similar to, and is some form of God that we have to uh, pay heed to its it's very it's something much much more personal and and available to everybody. In fact, uh, yeah, it's really the sense of uncovering something which is already there yeah, inherently, very much, which is quite different from like saying you have to build a building where you need first the first floor and then the second floor. Very different, which gives you a very much the structure of like you have to do this thing first before you can That's do right. the next thing and so on, but what we are trying to do is really uncovering something. So we chip away. We basically chip away. We chip away, yeah. Whatever corner we can chip on, we can start chipping. That's right. And one day you, you, you start on one corner and the other day in another way, like uh, maybe in a, in a less elegant way than Michelangelo would have done it. <laughs> but definitely with similarly elegant results. Yes, definitely. So... Um, I want to switch topic here yep. because I have been thinking, um, we talked last week a little bit how, how it was for us personally that we find ourselves in this position where we are now. Mm. And the, the one thing that comes to my mind always is this, a sense of dissatisfaction with ordinary life. Yeah. Um, in Buddhist teachings, or at least in the translations that we read, I don't know how it's originally in, in Sanskrit or Pali, but in our translations, we often hear the sutra starting with describing 
<clears throat> our life is suffering. Mm. And I remember when, when I kind of met the Buddhist teachings, and often actually it's even said like, you need to have, you need to experience a certain sense of suffering mm. to actually really have some incentive mm. to start on the path or to get interested in these teachings, which then would free you from this suffering. Mm. <clears throat> and yeah, when I was like in my twenties, I didn't feel like I had a particularly life full of suffering. Mm. I felt really happy, joyful. I mean, when you're in your twenties, really it's everything, it's all rosy mm. and perfectly fine. I didn't really feel like I had a lot of stuff. I mm. didn't have people dying around me. Mm. I didn't have any illnesses. Mm. <clears throat> I I wasn't I wasn't rich, but I wasn't poor. I mean, I didn't mm. have to struggle to have enough food or to kind of find a place to live. Mm. I didn't feel, I couldn't really identify with this sense of suffering mm. or that life is suffering. Mm. And so, I think more recently what a lot of Buddhist teachers or people talk about Buddhism, they rather use the term a dissatisfaction. Yeah. Which is something that I I can really relate to. Mm. Like when I I studied mathematics at university, which David asked me last time if I had done any weird things in my life. <laughs> I think studying 12 years of mathematics probably for most people counts as really weird. Mm. So when I studied mathematics at university, I always, I mean, I really enjoyed it, but there was this feeling like that's not really it. I mm. mean, it's really fun, but it didn't really seem to kind of be really fulfilling mm. in the in the true sense. It was mm. fun. It was nice entertainment. You had to really kind of squeeze your brain cells to get what mm. you wanted, but the sense of really full satisfaction mm. wasn't there. And I remember I asked my professor kind of about that. Don't you think this is a little bit shallow or, you know, kind <laughs> of doesn't really have a point. And he said, yep, it's true. But I have tried all the other subjects as well in academia. And it's the same as all of them. Mm. So it's not, mathematics is definitely, was in his view, not worse than biology or psychology or anything else. Um, that was kind of relief for me at that time, but obviously not enough because this feeling of dissatisfaction just stayed with me. Yeah. It's a form of, you know, it's, it's again, it's a little bit of a problem with the translation of the word dukkha from, I think is either Sanskrit or Pali, but it's way bigger than suffering. Uh, as we know, you know, in the teaching we follow, there are three ways of suffering and we could go into that. But basically if you cover all the type, the like, uh, the taxonomy of, you know, the subdivision of suffering, you, you, you see that in the ways that defined there, your dissatisfaction, absence of, um, Fulfillment is definitely a form of suffering. How is it not? I mean, suffering is always either there's something there, you don't want to have it. That's one type. Or there's something that is not there that you want to have. There you go. Now, oh, of course, my one of my favorites one is you meet those that you don't want to meet. 
Yeah, that's one subset. And of, you yeah. don't meet those that you actually want to meet. Yeah. <clears throat> which these days might be a little bit alleviated by Facebook and other things. But Well, you can filter and decide, but sometimes... I still think when you're on Facebook, most of the content you see is not what you actually would like to see. Yeah, it's, it's that form of... Uh, you know, I think behind this whole thing, it's... Uh, yeah, no. you could say, you know, concentrating on suffering, it's kind of a bummer and it's a negative approach to life. But actually the step before that, that is sometimes not um, emphasized is you don't concentrate on suffering. The main thing you want to be happy. I mean, and depending how fanatical you are about happiness, you will discover at some point what is conducive to happiness and what is not. If you're not very fanatical and you're happy, you know, when your belly is full, it's warm around you and nobody died in the last 10 years of your life, then it's that form of happiness. It's relatively uh, simple to have, especially if you're born in the first world and you don't live in a third world country where the situation is much different, like the type of suffering that they, they, they have to live with uh, is much more concrete and, and, and painful. But then if you, if you, if you're fanatical about, about happiness and you want to get, you want to be happy in a, in a way that, that you can rely on. It's not happy for five minutes. It's not happy for 10 minutes. It's happy forever. And, and if you have that fanatical and that idealistic, that the duration of the happiness and the, and the, and the high of the happiness, if you want, is so majestic. Then you approach life saying, okay, what, 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 are, what is all this stuff? Yeah, then it doesn't work. And I think actually what makes things worse is now this, I'm just a conjecture. I'm not sure, but I think a lot of us, or maybe all of us, I think experience certain moments of really true happiness and I think that's often described as some kind of a moment of transcendence yeah. where you do transcend normal, ordinary concerns and just find yourself in a state of yeah, bliss or happiness mm. or completely at ease and, kind and of almost satisfied, satisfied mm. and kind of happy without any reason. And that can be I guess a lot of, for a lot of people it comes in nature that mm. they are just inspired and, and there's something that where your ordinary concerns or limitations or your normal train of thinking just stops. I would say it's the baseline, you know, it's like talking about chipping away and going back to the, uh, what we really are. I think the baseline, if you stop messing around, in a deep sense with your, with your mind, the baseline is happiness. That, that status where the, you know, you don't add anything to your mental activity. You don't, uh, you don't mess around yeah. basically. It's, it's the baseline and the baseline. And that's, that's what I, I would say that, you know, these Buddhist teaching are very positive. They're not negative in the sense that they kind of overemphasize suffering of, of uh, others, uh, uh, elements of life. The, the real message is, look, the baseline is happiness. And to a certain extent, you just have to stop doing all the things that 
uh, are suffering. Yeah, and I think when you, if you don't have spiritual teachings, I think it's really tough or almost actually impossible to understand what distinguishes those moments from how you normally operate. That's right. Of course, if you have received Buddhist teachings and you heard all of that, then slowly you kind of realize, oh, normally the way we view our environment, we view ourselves, is always has this sense of duality of me and That's others, right. of the others, me, my environment against them, inside, outside. There's always a sense mm. of duality and trying to protect myself or making myself happy or trying to avoid suffering, which is mm. most of the time perceived as something that's externally imposed mm. on you from outside. <clears throat> and I think at that moment, that kind of sense of duality or grasping at, at self, as Buddhists would say, just falls away for, for no particular reason, really, probably just a sense of inspiration or or could also be just exhaustion. I mean, mm. um, I guess a lot of people who do sports know that feeling that just because you exert your body so much, your mind kind of stops at some point. You come to the, to the peak of a mountain and you have been walking up, climbing up there for six hours <clears throat> and then you just sit down and your mind just stops there's no no further kind of thinking and stories and stuff. And then you're left you're kind of left with this very puzzling situation where uh you know you wanted you wanted to be happy right and uh, all you have learned so far in your life is uh, happiness something you have to earn you have to work for you have to do something about often you have to fight in order to make sure that your happiness continues and then suddenly you, you're left with this kind of positive message and say that the moment you stop doing all those things, happiness has a chance to show up. Yeah. And, and you I, have no idea when you, if you try to reproduce that, but good no luck idea. to you. There's no chance. And I <clears throat> describe my, my kind of the last maybe 10 years of my life to be pretty much living with this puzzling reality, which intellectually I've understood. But then in reality and emotionality, this is a constant, you know, sort of tension between um, letting go, which is what leads to more happiness, and being still used to have to kind of manipulate and uh, proactively have to do something so that my happiness last longer and and that's um that's why it's called the path it's not it's not a simple thing and it's not like a lot of answers to to a lot of important questions and from there on everything is fine because very often it's counterintuitive because intuition is based on your previous experience that was based on a way of modus operandi you know a way of uh doing things that um only results on the form of, you know, happiness we've been talking about, which is, we you know, a few, five minutes here, 10 minutes there, a couple of days there that have no, they're, they're not reliable. And uh, the moment you, you even think about that you would like to have a form of happiness that is reliable, uh, you know, long lasting, even everlasting. And then you have to find, to find a way to operate that supports that kind of goal. Yeah, that's right. 
And what I think a lot of people try, and I'm not saying this is bad ideas, but that's what a lot of people try to kind of achieve some not kind of permanent happiness, but at least some recurring happiness. One thing is certainly um, living in a family mm. and experiencing the love that's created between yeah. human humans and your children and mm. your partner. Mm. And a lot of social action might just be motivated because from that, because when you when you find yourself helping other people or imp helping other people to improve their lives or improving mm. general situations, that kind of does generate a huge amount of happiness. And I think even a lot of times you might, in the process of thinking about others, dissolve that sense of duality. Yeah, that's a tricky part about, you know, you would say that form of reaching, uh, you know, working towards happiness is definitely better than uh, drugs. Because drugs is a form of, taking drugs is a form of uh, trying to reproductively, in a way that is, reproductively, <laughs> in a way that is re reproducible, uh, reach a form of happiness, yeah. a feeling that you describe as positive, you know, uh, which before you get addicted to it might even be, you know, relatively innocent and good, you know, it's a good, it's a good feeling like being warm instead of being cold. And you want to have it again. And you know that if you take that drink, smoke, or whatever you do with the stuff, you're going to feel in a certain way. There's, uh, to a certain extent, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Speaking from personal experience here. I, not me. I'm not... Uh, I have never been good with drugs, you know. I've never done real drugs. Uh, I always... I always kind of knew... Well, first of all, I think my parents managed to put in myself a lot of fear about that, which was a good, a good tool to use at that age. And, but also later on when, when I was kind of technically an adult, um, although as a musician, I used to be a musician stuff, I was around drugs and stuff. I never, I never did drugs f fundamentally because I, I, I had the feeling I didn't, ha I wouldn't have had enough, um, power to control it. I had the feeling I, if I get, if I start liking something like I, for the moment, I know I like food, there's no way to stop me. I'm going to become a, you know, a junkie, you know, and just go for it. And, you know, you will find me in a trailer smoking crack the next day. It's like, <laughs> I know my limits, so I'm not, not even going to start. And with alcohol and stuff like that, uh, often is the physical limit. You know, I just start getting, feeling, uh, physically unwell way before I get really, 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 really drunk. Uh, Unless we're talking about Jing, that works differently for some reason. But getting back to the point we're trying to make is that you could say that uh, finding happiness through love and, uh, and sharing that love with others is a, it's actually part of this Buddhist part to a certain extent. And there's nothing wrong with that. It, it all depends from your view, basically, how this thing is embedded in the, in the way you see the world. As everybody knows, some people show love and affection and we feel creepy <laughs> yes definitely we all know those okay even if it's not in a sexual sense sometimes there's a lot of strings attached and it look it, it really feels like they are trying to get something out of it i mean isn't it and sometimes other people show uh, affection and, and want to help and, and love and it feels perfect yeah and they might actually not do any physical action to yeah. 
exercise that love. Yeah, it's because it comes from a different place, you know. And uh, if we get addicted to love, as the song goes, and uh, and then we try to reproduce it in a very mechanical, mechanistic way by trying to get love from people and you know do anything we can to have them appreciate and smile and do whatever to us uh, down to. Uh, down to kind of helping them with a sense of, um, you know, pity towards them. That, you know, you could say, well, the person gets something out of it. But for the for the person giving the love, it's, it's, it's not really a helpful uh, exercise. Let's put it like that. You don't learn anything new that brings you out of that um, cycle of being dependent on stuff around you. And uh, interestingly... When you meet spiritual, spiritually developed uh, people of, of any tradition, you know, uh, there is something common in them. There is this, you feel so good <laughs> and they haven't done anything specific to you or for you or not trying to get anything specific out of you, whatever. But there's this sense of shared energy or love or whatever you want that uh, just makes you feel good. And uh, Which is probably the main reason why people come to events with His Holiness the, the Dalai Lama. Yeah, it's exactly. They're not Buddhism, but it's just to be there with him is... And everybody's transformed to a certain good, extent. Yeah. And then even it starts to a little bit reproduce itself in small ways between the people. So it's a, it's a whole, you know, it's a trip, you know. And nobody understands what he's talking about most of the time because he, he, he dives into very complex and subtle points of Buddhist philosophy that uh, some of the most brilliant minds in both India and Tibet have... Uh, <laughs> developed and refined so it's it's really hard stuff you know um, mentally but uh, he's fully trained not only in the intellectual aspect but also in the developing love and and sharing uh, love and compassion in a very uh, how would you say he's the embodiment of that he just does it yeah so everybody goes there and they don't understand the word and go home and go home smiling and and to a certain extent that's the gig yeah and I think there's, you know, he's, he, he actually describes that, you know, he, he kind of acknowledges that there is something going on there and he describes where he comes from and he says, you know, it's, you know, it's just because I st studied this specific text and, you know, the Bodhicavatara, this f famous text that he really loves and I really tried to apply what is written there, basically saying because I'm following this path, you know, and... Uh, yeah, so he's like an example of where you can actually reach... Yeah. If you put your mind mind to it, really. You, absolutely. And uh, and you will, you know, there's also, you know, you don't need to become Tibetan. You don't need to wear red and yellow colored clothes. You don't need to become a monk. Uh, you will find your own flavor of that. And uh, But the main thing is that to move in that direction and... Uh, it has to start with something very close and personal because, you know, I've done a few years of studies of, of, of Buddhism and stuff like that. And um, it's extremely helpful. Uh, but the, the starting point and if you want the ending point is something very close to you and your, your current mental, emotional, physical condition. And to a certain extent, all the study has to boil down to something more, uh, if you want practical, 
and very close to your, very, very close to your heart and you, the way you are, yeah. because that's where you work with your mind. Because when you say mind, again, in, in the, the word mind, in, the way we use it in the West is very heady, is very brainy, is very intellectual. But we're using it for this Tibetan word sem, which, you know, includes the what we call the heart. So it's the whole mental and psychological makeup and, and, and activities and thoughts, emotions, uh, and is way, way deeper than just, uh, you know, intellectual thinking. Uh, you have to take care of all of that because uh, when we really get in trouble in life, it very often it's not because we miscalculated, uh, you know, something or we thought about something in the wrong way, but it's because something emotional happened or something that triggered a certain emotion. And then we reacted in a certain way to that emotion. And then the person in front of us did the same. And the whole thing become a war, either a big one, a real one between nations or a personal one. And these are real situations. And they, you know, to a certain extent are very much uh, based on your emotional and the way you deal with the uh, with emotions, yeah, that's which kind of brings me to another point. That one other way that people try to find this satisfaction mm. or reach that transcendence is actually through creativity. Mm. And of course, there are lots of examples in history where extremely creative people, and of course, there are many movies about it. They are creating amazing works of art which for which completely help other people to transcend the, the mm. normal state of mind i mean if you think about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart yeah, I, knew, music, I knew Mozart would come of course he would come <laughs> or paintings mm. um, so I try to come up with an Austrian painter now photographers were well, climped obviously yeah. <laughs> um but all these works of art, I think, do inspire a bigger sense of being in people. Mm. Well, some of them. Some of them, others just have a different purpose of kind of mm. creating certain emotions or letting people confront them with certain ideas. But a lot of them just create this feeling of transcendence. And I'm always thinking about... Um, I can't believe I forgot the title of the movie. Shawshank Redemption. Oh, yeah. Where at a certain point in the movie, <clears throat> they play an opera from Mozart over the prison yard. And you can just see all these prisoners who are completely elevated and almost freed from a second, for a second from the current circumstances. And yeah. That's one of those movies. I don't know if you have movies like that in your life. There's a type of movies that, for some reason, uh, and I'm talking back then when I used to watch TV, when there was my kind of in entertainment was television-based or based on somebody else's schedule. One of those movies I would always see from the middle to the end. I never saw the beginning for a long time. It's like there are a number of movies that they always show up and I always want to see them. And I, I, I never see the first half or the first uh, third. That's one of those. So I don't, of those, I must have seen bits and pieces there and there. I don't remember the scene with the, with the Mozart. Mm. 
No, that, I, this is one of my favorite movies, and I have seen uh-huh. it many times from beginning to the end. Mm. I had the VHS tape, which no, so you had complete control. Had, I had complete control. <clears throat> now, of course, I have no more machine to stick that one in. Mm. So I think creativity is one of these ways that people try to use to attain happiness or overcome this feeling of dissatisfaction. And so one example is this, the effect that these works of arts can have on other people. But I think most of of normal people, when they do their hobby, their creative hobby, I mean, mm. it can be taking photos or making music. Recording a podcast. Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> by the way, that's us. Um, anyway, you might do that not so much to actually inspire that feeling of transcendence in somebody else, mm. but more to, to, yeah, to connect to that inner happiness in yourself by doing something creative. And have you heard about the flow? No, never heard about the flow. The flow is, uh, God, if I could remember names and stuff, it's, um, well, there's a book called the flow. Uh, but it's, I think it's um, it's, a, it's a theory that emerged on modern some form of modern psychology. I think the the main writer whose name I forgot completely. I think is either Romanian or or, or something like that. From and uh, if I'm not wrong, it has been also developed at I think the University of Milano in Italy, but I'm not sure. Anyway, they did a lot of study exactly on that on the specific state that artist and some uh, sportsmen and uh, other people have very, very focused on, uh, on an activity like that reach, which is called the flow. And it's very fascinating. There's a lot of interesting parallel to what some of the states that in Buddhism are described when you meditate for a while. Uh, There's a sense of complete forgetting you. There's a sense of like shutting down to a certain extent the intellectual aspect of your mind and and there's a bliss to it and there's a focus and you know some tennis player described at the time when you you forget about the whole technical aspect you just know the ball has to go there and the ball is going to go exactly where you want it and they describe it as when you are in that moment that they might have it for five minutes in a match you know most of the match they are kind of close to it but not but you cannot make mistakes in that in that space but most importantly it's a very happy state it's a very, very happy state that is induced, it seems like, through focus. And it seems like through focus because he, he found out that there, are, there were people who were able to recreate the state of flow by uh, adding some form of focus, but also kind of complexity and difficulty to a job they had that was very repetitive. Like, you know, uh, some mecha- really mechanical job that you have to do many, many times over. And and this this. This person, for example, that he describes in this book, like really want to do it better and better and in a shortest amount of time. So he has to focus a lot. And after a while, this very boring job becomes the source of this flow state, which is very blissful. And it seems to be very much connected to both creativity and focus. And creativity is an interesting one because... But what's really interesting about creativity now is that actually 
and that's purely can be purely attributed to the internet really mm. that a lot of people kind of don't think of themselves anymore as consumers but they're actually all they're doing is creating they're creating content mm. whether it's linking things together on the facebook page yeah or creating content on twitter just yeah. tweeting or um of course taking photos has always been a creative process but now everybody can do it you don't mm. need like 10,000 euro equipment in a dark room mm. and it's technically very easy now but the creative part is still there yeah music even more and i mean music of course you can do on your ipad now you don't even mm. have to learn how to play a guitar when i started to have some decent uh you know recording equipment uh there was no decent cheap recording equipment there was cheap bad recording equipment and very expensive very good ex uh, recording equipment there was nothing in between in the last 10 years or 15 years let's say it has completely changed i mean even what we're doing now you know Yeah, it would have been impossible yeah. 10 years ago. Mm. So a lot of people, I mean, not Buddhists, Buddhists don't use the term that way, but a lot of non-Buddhist industry analysts, they actually say we are now entering an age of enlightenment. <laughs> where actually every, and that enlightenment in the sense of every person has the, the possibility to realize themselves. In in that in that meaning of realizing their creativity, yeah. But that's because the definition. It's interesting. I think you can use the word enlightenment. The moment you define your goal and your form of happiness, then that yeah, then whatever brings you towards that goal, like the happiness that ensue from being creative. And yeah, you can say you're moving towards your version of enlightenment. And, and then it's all about, uh, you know, definitions. When we use it, we use it in a kind of a bit more uh, fanatical. <laughs> extreme, yeah, I don't think way. that visiting Facebook is actually going to reach you to what Buddhists would call enlightenment. It could help in creating a sense of, you know, there's a lot of people think that uh, because everybody's on Facebook, there's no real communication anymore. I have no, I have no idea. I use Facebook from time to time, and it's it's pretty cool. Um, I try not to spend too much time in it on it. Um, I get bored very easily with it. But but there is something there about the also the I think creativity, but also the this necessity. This this we really need to communicate as human beings. I mean, the whole thing is about communication. Uh, we are social beings. Uh, we have voices, we can say things, we develop, you know, languages and stuff like that and, and the written language. And it's all about communicating music to uh, an art. It's all about somebody else is going to see this thing. Yeah. And even if it's only those five people listening to our podcast. Yeah. Otherwise we would do have the same chat without the microphone in front of us. Which would actually be much more comfortable. I really yeah. don't like having this metal ball in front of my eyes. <laughs> So maybe this whole kind of social networking and all these electronic gadgets is actually bad news for Buddhism. Because, Tell me why. Well, if everybody can reach their enlightenment through their iPhone or iPad, no, probably <laughs> it's not going to last. And I think after five years on Twitter or Facebook, you might find this feeling of dissatisfaction still is still creeping in. 
Many does. It's it's you know I you know similar to you. I didn't think I, I don't think I discovered and 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 well kind of joined the path. It's like left step, right step. One I'm always been in, always been interested in like the wisdom aspect. Like uh, okay, somebody decided I had to be born in this world, and then somebody please explain me how this thing works. And there was no there was no explanation. Like doesn't make any sense. But if that's the explanation, like at least tell me that there was no, you know, philosophy, no religion, and no kind of uh, explanation that I have been exposed to up until my, you know, teenage was uh, somehow satisfactory. So what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to breathe, eat, shit, do all these things, and then that's it? Then I die, and the whole thing it was just a big joke, and you, I can't even laugh about the joke because I'm dead, and there's nothing, you know, to be perceived. And so yeah, that's one of the main kind of thing that pushed me to, you know, uh, to uh, add to the mix of my life also some spiritual search parallel to all the other things that I do just because I, I enjoy them, like eating, listening and playing music and stuff like that. But, and the other one, of course, sometimes then you have things in life that, you know, that, that they are more kind of suffering. And then often at that time you, you take a bigger step and you move a bit closer. And then for the rest of the time, you still try to find answers to more, if you want, existential questions. Uh, I think existential questions are very, very important. And I think they are not heady. I think they're very much connected in that, in my case, with the real emotions of fear and, and wanting to, to make sense of things and basically not uh, uh, some sort of, hey, this is serious stuff, you know, because this, this game, whether it's fun or not, it's going to end. And I'm not going to, you know, just passively wait for it to end without having understood uh, a little bit more about it. And uh, I probably was going to go somewhere with this, but I forgot completely uh, what was the point. But um, maybe it's a good point to stop. Maybe it's, it's a good point to stop. So all those five people out there who are listening to us, Please let us know what you think. Write to us at Twitter, Safe Space 2012. And the Tumblr? What about the Tumblr? We have a Tumblr page. Come on. Yeah. So we're also on Tumblr. Um, Safe Space 2012.tumblr.com. Tumblr has no E. T U M B L R.com. And I guess we're going to record another episode soon. We'll try to make this thing semi-weekly. Yeah, we hope so. Uh, and we'll see where it gets us. Yeah, and we're always happy if you criticize us. So Yeah, gently, please. Don't hold back. <laughs> <laughs> Tschüss. Bye.